0: it's friday april 24th i'm oscar ramirez in los angeles and this is the daily dive while we still need more research on which drugs are the most effective in treating covid-19 a recent study looking at records from the va shows there's no overall benefit from using hydroxychloroquine it was actually linked to more deaths in patients that were treated with it alone than in combination with azithromycin Chris Rowland, business of healthcare reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for why hydroxychloroquine might not be the most effective treatment. Next, after a few days of confusion, President Trump has signed a proclamation suspending immigration over the next 60 days. While the president made it seem like it would block many from coming in, the order includes broad exemptions for several categories of foreign workers and employers. Molly O'Toole, immigration and security reporter at The LA Times, joins us for what's in the proclamation. Finally, something non-coronavirus related. Post Malone could be the world's most relatable pop star. A look back at Bloomberg's pop star power rankings, which grades artists' earning abilities across criteria like touring, album sales, social media, and more, shows that he was number one for all of last year, as well as being listened to more times than any artist in the US. Lucas Shaw, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how Post Malone got here. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in the data are really just at best suggestive there have been cases that show there may be yeah. an effect and there are others to show there's no effect joining us now is chris roland business of healthcare reporter for the washington post thanks for joining us chris hey sure happy to be here wanted to talk about some new research that came out about hydroxychloroquine that's the anti-malarial drug that uh, the president had been touting, that a lot of doctors and hospitals have been prescribing, and there's been just a lot of anecdotal stuff that we've heard about it. But we have some research now. This is not peer-reviewed yet, so there's still some more to be learned. But the research says that there's no overall benefit of using hydroxychloroquine, and there's actually more deaths linked to it than patients that weren't treated with it. This is coming out of a study that was done by the VA. Chris, tell us a little bit about it.
1: So this is a study that basically bolsters the deep uncertainty there is around use of hydroxychloroquine and in combination with azithromycin as well an antibiotic in terms of both efficacy and safety. There's only been some very small studies and this is actually one of the first that had a fairly large number of patients and what they did was they, VA and academic researchers at the University of Virginia and the University of South Carolina took a look at patient records, looking back, so it's called a retrospective study. And they looked at the records of patients at the VA who had been treated for coronavirus, and they selected out a bunch that had been treated with hydroxychloroquine, a bunch that had been treated with the combination of hydroxychloroquine and or azithromycin. And then the third arm was patients who received neither of those drugs. And what they found was that in the hydroxychloroquine alone arm, there was like around a 27 or 28% death rate of coronavirus patients compared to the ones that had none of the drug, and their death rate was around 11%. So the death rate was higher for the hydroxychloroquine treated group. They also found that when it came to ventilation, there was really no meaningful difference between the arms. So this antimalarial did... Basically, nothing in terms of keeping people off ventilators. It's somewhat disappointing. I mean, these drugs have been used widely, and again, no one knows whether they're safe and effective. And here we have evidence that they're
0: not. So, I wanted to talk a little bit more about hydroxychloroquine. As you mentioned earlier, I mean, all this points to just the uncertainty of this. The study cautioned that we shouldn't be using this so widespread until we know more about it. But there are some known side effects or using hydroxychloroquine, some cardiac death. There was a French study, a Brazilian study, that both had problems with patients developing heart problems. And I guess there's something called QT prolongation, which kind of mm. affects the timing of the heart. So these mm. are some of the things that have been popping up with the use of this.
1: The side effects of hydroxychloroquine are well known. And alarmingly, azithromycin, which is the antibiotic that's been used in combination, also has the same side effect of Extending the period between your heart recharging. And if your heart is recharging more than half a second, it takes it more than half a second to recharge each time before it beats, you're in a position where you could have a dangerous arrhythmia, which could lead to sudden cardiac death. It's a very serious, obviously dangerous side effect that pops up in about 1% of patients who take this drug. And it's manageable when you're dealing with a small number of patients who take it. But when potentially hundreds of thousands of people are starting to take it, or a million, then you're going to have, you know, as many as 10,000 people suffering serious cardiac events and possibly dying. And that's why, you know, the president came under a fair amount of criticism for pushing these drugs so aggressively when there is this clear side effect and the efficacy is really unknown against coronavirus.
0: Christopher Rowland, business of healthcare reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. In
1: order to protect our great American workers, I've just signed an executive order temporarily suspending immigration into the United States. This will ensure that unemployed Americans of all backgrounds will be first in line for jobs as our economy
0: reopens. Joining us now is Molly O'Toole, immigration and security reporter at the LA Times. Thanks for joining us, Molly. Thanks for having me. Wanted to follow up on the president's order on immigration. He's going to be suspending immigration for 60 days, although it's not exactly the first order that he was kind of talking about a few days ago. There's a little bit of a scramble, as usually is the case with immigration orders or other orders from the president. He'll say something and then his aides have to scramble and actually go and write some of these things. So with this one, he said, you know, he was going to shut off uh, applications for permanent residence, things like that. But it didn't all come together that way. Molly, what do we know about what is actually in this new immigration order?
2: So originally on Monday night, Trump sparked a lot of confusion that his own aides scrambling at Homeland Security and elsewhere when he said he was going to issue an executive order to temporarily suspend immigration into the United States. So that sounds pretty sweeping. It sounds pretty broad. It sounds like a more or less like a complete shutdown for immigration in the U.S. And we know the administration, that's a long-held goal of theirs, the stated goal of theirs. The president campaigned on it. So it set people scrambling. And then on Tuesday, the president said, oh, it's going to be restricting legal permanent residents, which most people know as green cards. Set people scrambling again because was it going to apply to people already inside the United States, only outside the United States? How is this going to work? It would still be impacting a lot of people. It's over a million green cards, for example, legal permanent residency that was obtained in fiscal 2019. But in the end, on Wednesday, the president issued a proclamation, not an executive order, and there is a legal distinction there. And rather than this sweeping suspension of all immigration that he seems to describe, it actually only restricts entry to the United States for 60 days and for people seeking green cards from out the United States if they are not the Children under the age of 21 or spouses of U.S. citizens in the United States. And there are all sorts of other carve outs, which I can get into. But broadly, it excludes large categories of foreign workers or even foreign employers, such as investors along with their spouses and children under the age of 21, who really make up the largest number of people who would be coming into work. And that was the motivation that was described by the White House. The reasoning for this proclamation was to essentially eliminate competition for Americans who lost their jobs or who are out of work because of the economic shutdown intended to help staunch the spread of coronavirus. So there are really big carve-outs is the long and short of it to this proclamation.
0: Now, does making this a proclamation versus an executive order shield it from some type of legal challenges?
2: It could shield it from some, but then also create openings in other ways. And that's more of a question for a lawyer, and I'm not one. But the distinction of executive order and proclamation, there is a legal distinction there. And another thing that's important to note is while this is for 60 days, some of the carve-outs even could potentially open up the administration to certain lawsuits. And lawyers who were familiar with the order and read the order suggested to us, such is one law professor at UCLA, that the president's own comments and some of the confusion around the way the lack of interagency coordination, apparently that some of the legal review of the text didn't take place until after the president had already announced that the order was going to happen. All of this could potentially open up the administration to legal challenges because the authority that they cited for this proclamation for taking these steps to restrict some immigration from outside the U.S. It's the same authority on which they relied for the travel ban. And while the Supreme Court ultimately held up a version of the travel ban, the administration basically is relying on this authority to say that this group of people doesn't serve the national interest. And so when you have the president on the record, is what one professor suggested to us, not talking about national security at all and not really talking about public health, which is the emergency that they're sort of invoking in order to do this. He's talking about jobs. That potentially opens them up because this professor suggests that that's far beyond what Congress intended when it advocated some of this authority to
0: the executive. He's made no bones about it. He said specifically, this is about jobs. We don't want immigrants getting these jobs ahead of Americans when the economy starts reopening again. But you can see it right in the order, you know, right away, farm workers, these guest workers, things like that that are vital to the country reopening, he gave this to the business leaders basically who rely on these people to come in and work for them. So yes, as you mentioned at the very beginning, very confusing time. It sounds like all immigration is going to be shut down, but then you drill into it once they finally put it all together. It's not really what happened. All these temporary foreign workers, everything that are vital to us, those people are still going to be allowed to come in. I should note,
2: it's not as if this does nothing. It just doesn't do what they said it would do, how they presented it. And the fact that the Trump 2020 campaign sent out information about this order before any other part of the administration did, and we had gotten any information from Homeland Security to the White House really speaks volumes. But to some extent, this was about messaging. But some expert analysts suggest that if this were to stay in place for a year, for example, it would block about 350,000 people. The administration itself has acknowledged that with all sorts of travel restrictions from all around the world and many of the agencies of the federal government, they acknowledge they don't even know how many people this would potentially block because basically no one is really trying to come right now anyway. But the administration estimated that, you know, it could be maybe 400,000 people. It creates a lot of angst for families, U.S. citizens, and legal permanent residents in the United States that were trying to reunite with, oh, I don't know, say their 22-year-old child and not their 21-year-old child, their parents. It certainly does have a broad impact, but it definitely does not do what they initially said it would do. And it's really difficult to follow the logic of how this would actually help American workers when many of the foreign worker categories are not included in this. And the employment-based green cards, actually, they have to prove as part of that process that they essentially have to do a labor market check that shows that they're not taking a job from a qualified U.S. national anyway. So it's unclear what the economic impact of this actually would be.
0: Molly O'Toole, immigration and security reporter at the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
3: Our first rankings, which came out just this week, were for March. But I did compile a ranking for 2019. And in 2019, Post Malone was the biggest pop star in the world.
0: Joining us now is Lucas Shaw, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Lucas. Great to be back. I was looking through a sea of coronavirus news. And in the middle of that, I came across your article. And it was titled, Post Malone is Planet Earth's Most Relatable Pop Star. So I immediately had to click on it, obviously. So I wanted to bring you on just to talk a little bit about something that is not coronavirus related, like I said. So tell us a little bit about this. There at Bloomberg, you guys have these pop star power rankings. You judged artists on a different range of criteria, and you found out that Post Malone is just one of the top stars. Everybody seems to love him. He has huge crossover appeal. Tell us more about it.
3: While we were developing these new power rankings over the past several months, I ran tests every week, and then eventually every month, and then I conducted one for all of 2019. So our first rankings, which came out just this week, were for March, but I did compile a ranking for 2019, and in 2019, Post Malone was the biggest pop star in the world. He not only was the most listened to artist in the U.S., according to Nielsen and MRC, he was the second most popular act on YouTube. He had one of the 15 biggest tours. He just seems to check every box that you'd use to measure a pop star. And a big part of his success is that he appeals to everyone from sort of, you know, a 14 year old girl in New York City to a 39 year old mom of a couple people in Omaha, to a young guy, maybe in Oakland. He gets big plan on hip hop radio. He gets big plan on alternative rock radio, big plan on top 40 radio. He's popular on YouTube. He's popular on Spotify. He's popular on Instagram. It's hard to find places where there are not fans of Post Malone.
0: I think everybody has heard of him now, but some could still be unfamiliar with how he came up. He started off on SoundCloud and he was a rapper, right? But when he started getting signed and started working with the record label that he had at Republic, they placed him with a bunch of different people and that's what really broadened his audience.
3: I interviewed his booking agent, Cheryl Pagliarani at UTA, and she was talking about how when she first started to work with him, it was right after White Iverson started to blow up on SoundCloud and then on YouTube. And his core fan base was mostly young hip-hop heads. But she then put him on tour with Subtract, which kind of helped him reach that electronic audience, put him on tour with Fetty Wap, which really just sort of strengthened his appeal with hip-hop audience. And then his real breakthrough moment, I think, was when he got to open for Justin Bieber, just because that's a totally different audience than he was used to speaking to. Also, Bieber's just one of the biggest stars in the world in our March rankings, Bieber's number two. And that laid the foundation for what became a really steady rise. White Iverson was a popular song. It never broke through in a huge way into culture. It just got the attention of everybody in the music business. His first major label debut was a decent hit, but it was never the biggest album in the world. It just performed for like a year and a half. And then by the time his second album came out, which was Dear Bungs and Bentley's, that one was one of the biggest records of the year and what really propelled him to be one of the big stars in the
2: world.
0: You know, he has a lot of detractors. He has a very goofy look. He has the face tattoos. He came up listening to a lot of country, but there's still people in that genre that love him too. He just has a lot of this broad appeal, as I keep saying. But as I mentioned, there there was a lot of detractors. There was people that said, you know, he's one of the shallowest bastardizations of rap to date, but here he is on top right now.
3: He does seem like somebody who's really easy to, make fun of. He's got the face tattoos, he endorses Bud Light, and the music that he makes, it's hip-hop, but it's not really like strong hip-hop. It's a lot of sing-songy, there's a lot of singing to it, a lot of auto-tune, he's got the country elements, and yet his connection with fans is very real. I was supposed to go see him in Southern California, in the middle of March before the coronavirus led the cancellation of all these concerts, so I didn't get the chance. I think that would have been a really good opportunity, especially because a number of the people I've spoken with have talked about how talented a musician is. There was one executive who told me a story. He was playing kind of a private party, pool party, at the Coachella Music Festival a few years ago, and they had had performances all day. And then at a certain point towards the end of the night, before Post was supposed to go on, the power in the building stopped working. None of the speakers were functioning. And they assumed that he wouldn't want to go ahead and perform. He ended up playing an acoustic set for 40, 50 minutes, which is pretty unheard of.
0: Just to talk just a little bit more about the popularity, one of his latest songs is called Circles. It's been on the top 100, top 10 charts for 32 weeks in a row. It's like the second longest charting top 10 hit ever. They say it'll hit 33 and beyond, so he'll get a few more records with that song alone. But people praise him, his authenticity. You know, he looks crazy and messy, as we were saying, but people think it's genuine and they seem to think he's a genuine person. So, you know, it's just a a fun kind of look into this. And like I said, I just love the headline, Planet Earth's Most Relatable Pop Star. And it's just something fun to read over, uh, you know, right now while everybody's going through all this.
3: Yeah, and you mentioned how long Circles has been in the top 10. That's really not unusual for him. The only other artist who I feel like is a comparison here, might Drake, where they release music and it just never leaves yeah. the top 10. It's like you see new songs will come out and they'll stay there for a few weeks and they slowly fall down. And new, new songs come out, they stay in the top 10 for a few weeks, slowly fall out. When Drake and Post have new music out, people listen to it all the time. It's something I don't fully understand just because that's not how I listen to music. I definitely cycle through new stuff all the time, but there are clearly people out there who are just going to listen to the album over and over and over and over again.
0: Lucas Shaw reporter at Bloomberg news. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at daily dive pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.